And she said, maybe we can play together. And I said, what do you do? And she started singing a song. I flipped out, you know? <laughs> I mean, as a young guy back then, you know, having, having not really heard any of my contemporaries that, that were that good, it was like, I'm in the presence of greatness. The, the bands from, from England, et cetera, that came over were much more professional musicians than we San Franciscans were in a lot of ways. You know, the way they dressed, their clothes. Like I remember there was this gal that made clothes from the English bands It was a friend of Paul's and she looked at us and she went, you guys are like farmers and freaks. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate twice-weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. On this week's episode, I've got another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer for you. It's our eighth of the series, and that's kind of pretty impressive, right? Eight Hall of Famers in just 35 episodes. So far, if you've not checked out the others, there was uh, on episode one, Kenny Jones, who was inducted with The Faces alongside Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood. Kenny also played in The Small Faces and replaced Keith Moon in The Who when he sadly passed away, so he's got some amazing stories. Episode two was John Ilsley from Dire Straits. Episode 4, and again on a recent Side 2 episode, was the Zombies lead singer Colin Blunstone. We also then had another Dire Straits member, the drummer, Pick Withers, on episode 12. Steve Hackett was our next Hall of Famer, guitarist with Genesis, he was on episode 13. Bass player with Heart, Steve Fossen, appeared on episode 21. And Credence Clearwater Revival legend Doug Cosmo Clifford was my guest on episode 28. So not bad going at all, is it? Now, today's guest is not only a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, but with his band, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys. He's ranked in the top 100 guitarists of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine, and he came through the burgeoning summer of love scene in San Francisco in the 60s to play the blistering set at Woodstock as well. I'm talking about Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna guitarist Yoma Kaukonen. But quickly, before we hear my chat with him, I want to say check out Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook just to see a funny little meme that we put up last week involving last week's guest, the wonderful Steve Lukather from Toto. Now it's linked to the recent football happenings at the European Championships where top players are moving sponsor drinks away from in front of them at press conferences. Now there was a little nice coincidence I spotted when interviewing Steve Lukather and Noble Multimedia kindly turned it into a funny meme video for me and it's got a bit of traction so check it out now, go onto Facebook search for Vintage Rock Pod and you'll see the funny meme there. So, back to Yorma Kalkinen then. Best known, as I said, for his time in Jefferson Airplane, along with the classic lineup of the wonderful Grace Slick, Marty Balin, Paul Kantner, Jack Cassidy and Spencer Dryden. They became one of the pioneering groups of the flower power psychedelic era, which helped to define the San Francisco sound. They were the first band from that Bay Area to achieve international commercial success too. Now, when the band split apart, Yorma and Jack focused full-time on their band Hot Tuna, which has been going for about 50 years now. Some of the others changed the band to become Jefferson Starship, which later evolved into the pop superstars Starship in the 80s. So a really rich history. We make our way through a lot of that in the conversation, plus some other big-name stars thrown in there too. So here you go. My interview with Yorma Kalkinen. 
I'm delighted to welcome my next guest, who Rolling Stone placed him in the top 100 guitarists of all time. You Discover Music said his solo on Somebody to Love was in the top 100 of all time too. He's a rock and roll Hall of Famer, has been with his band Hot Tuna for half a century and continues to inspire and entertain today, with the New York Times naming his YouTube shows as one of the 10 best quarantine concerts online recently too. It's incredible. It's a pleasure to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Yoma Kalkinen. Well, listen, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Yom. You've got such an incredible back catalogue of everything. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your stories. Sure. So let's go back to those those heady days of the 60s then. I mean, San Francisco, it was the, the cultural epicentre of counterculture, wasn't it, in the US? And it was a whole new scene, and you and your band, Jefferson Airplane, were right in the middle of all that with the likes of The Grateful Dead and Quicksilver and others. I mean, what was it like to be part of all that? Could you feel the cultural significance of what was happening at the time? What, and not in those terms, obviously. I, I don't think any of us thought of things that way. But it was an interesting time for a lot of reasons. And, you know, when you talk about the epicenter of all that stuff, I don't think any of us thought about that. <laughs> San Francisco back in those days was a really interesting place. We all moved there because it was a cheap place to live. <laughs> if you know anything about San Francisco property, it's ridiculous. I mean, nobody can afford to live there anymore. But it was a cheap place to live. It was a small sort of intimate community, so everybody knew each other. And interestingly enough, you know, as, as the rock scene was, 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 was sort of like coming across the pond from England, from your area over there, you know, in many respects, yeah, sure, we had our own little scene there. But we looked to you guys and we all wanted to go, wow, it's all happening over there in England. We've got to go over there. <laughs> But yeah, but we got very lucky. A lot of stuff was going on. San Francisco was a very inviting place to artists in general, not just musicians. And in the beginning of, of, of those times, you know, even before the Jefferson Airplane was signed to a major label, there were the the graphic artists, there was the poster stuff at the Fillmore, there was all the, the beat poets and all this sort of stuff. So there was really sort of a, if you want to, for lack of a better word, a cultural scene going on. And... And, you know, when things opened up and we became internationally known, I think it came as a big surprise to everybody. <laughs> to see how it was received elsewhere, you mean? Absolutely. Good stuff. And you mentioned there everybody kind of knew everyone and everyone got along and all that sort of stuff from all the different cultural and arts backgrounds. But when you talk about the legendary figures that you guys kind of hung around with, I mean, to Jerry Garcia and Janis Joplins and these sort of people who nowadays are just held up in awe, aren't they? I mean, what do you remember of, of Janis the first time you played with her or the first time you heard her sing? What, do you, what are your memories of Janis? Well, so I moved to California in 1962 and I, and I moved there to go to school. Now, a lot of people, you know, I'm one of these guys that sort of finished school, but it wasn't that important to me because my parents expected it, and that's just how it was. But what was important to me back in those days was staying out of the draft, was not going into the Army. <laughs> so, and, that, and one of the ways to do that was to stay in school. So I went out to California. It's 1962. Uh, I just moved from, I'm an East Coast guy. I just moved from the East Coast. And, and the very first week that I was in Santa, Santa Clara, which is 50 miles south of San Francisco, I'm wandering around this little campus at the school I was going to, and there's a flyer on a telephone pole, and they talk about a hoot nanny, which we know today is open mics. And in any case, I went, wow, that's great. So I grabbed my guitar, and I went down, and, that, and it was the first or second weekend that I was in California. And at this particular hoot nanny was a guy named Richmond Talbot, who was a blues player from Berkeley, and Janis Joplin, of all people. I'd never met her before. I didn't know what the deal was. You, you know, Janice, when we look at Janice, there's many different Janices. There's Pearl. There's the Flash. In those days, 
Janice was dressed, well, much like I am today, jeans, a work shirt, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> and so we're sitting in this tiny little backstage in this little sort of hole-in-the-wall coffee shop, and, and she didn't bring an accompanist with her. And we're just talking, and, and then what are we going to do? And she said, and she, without even knowing me, she said, well, maybe we can play together. And I said, what do you do? And she started singing a song. I flipped out. You know, I mean, as a young guy back then, you know, having having not really heard any of my contemporaries that, that were that good, it was like, I'm in the presence of greatness. And we started we started to play, and I, I knew, if I didn't know her songs specifically, I knew the landscape of them so I could play them. And I remember the first time that we, we got on stage, and at, at the offstage, there was one teeny little mic, and these little speakers made it so it was louder than the espresso machine. Janice didn't need a mic, and I just remember thinking that that I'm in the presence of greatness, and this is a significant moment, you know. So it didn't surprise me any when Janice became the later Janice. Now, over the next couple of years before the rock and because this is pre-rock and roll for us, uh, next couple of years, you know, whenever Janice needed an accompanist down the peninsula, because none of us had cars back then, so 50 miles was a big deal, could take all day on a bus. So, and so she would say, I'm, I've got a gig here, and so can you find your way to it, and we'll play the gig. And I went, absolutely. And occasionally, because we got we got to know each other, when she would do something in San Francisco, she couldn't get one of her go-to guys in San Francisco, she'd call me up, and I'd get in the bus and go to San Francisco. Incredible stuff, absolutely Good stuff, phenomenal. it really is. You know, you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> you can't, indeed. Um, and then we, we have to talk about Jefferson Airplane. I mean, sure. where did you guys form them? When did you all meet? So... So Paul Cantner, I met Paul Cantner when I first moved there in 62. He had dropped out of the school that I was going to. And, uh, and one of my friends, you know, this is such funny stuff. I mean, hey, it's like 60 years ago. It's not a surprise that things have changed. But when I went to the University of Santa Clara, it was the first year. I'd already lived on my own for a couple of years, and I sort of considered myself an adult. Now I'm back in a dorm again in a school that where it's the first year that's a co-ed school. And the guys in the school, the upperclassmen, are upset because there's women in the, in the school. That's the kind of environment it was. Yeah, you can't make this up. So there was one guy there that was a year older than me, and he, and he had a beard. It was the only guy in the campus that had a beard. And we looked at each other, and we realized we're probably going to be friends. And we became friends, and he said, there's this guy you got to meet. And the guy was Paul Cantor, so he'd already dropped out. So when I so I went to I went to see Paul. Paul was like a surfer dude in Santa Cruz back then, if you can imagine such a thing. And so and he was he was playing folk music and this and that. He wasn't a blues player, but he was definitely into the folk music. And he liked groups and vocal groups. We became buddies. So as time went on, Paul moved to San Francisco, and in San Francisco he met Marty Ballin at another open mic up there. And he and Marty had been playing with this gal Signe Anderson, who was the first singer in Jefferson Airplane. And the whole, and thanks, thanks to all the Brits over there, we realized we need to have a rock and roll band. We need to get out of this folk and we need a rock and roll band. And there's no question about it that that was, you know, that much more than American rock bands at the time, that that was like driving our, our sort of like intellectual progress. In any case, so Paul and Marty and Signe got together and they started a band and it had no name and they needed a guitar player. And so Paul came back down where I lived, and he, and he, and he said, we're, we're doing this band. How would you like to try out for the band? And I went, well, uh, I don't know. I'm not really, you know. I never really played electric guitar. I never actually really played 
in a band before. I'd been a solo player for so long, but I figured, what the heck? So I so I went up and uh, and auditioned for the band. And even though it wasn't my comfort zone at the time, it was just a lot of fun. So 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 then it was Paul, Signy, Marty, me. There there was a, a drummer named Jerry Peliquin and a a bass player named Bob Harvey, who, interestingly enough, this many years later, lives up the road from me in southeast Ohio, but that's that's another story. So in any case, so then one thing led to another, and then we got Jack in the band, and then uh, uh, we changed drummers. Skip Spence was one of the early drummers, and it was just sort of like a natural growth of things. You know, when, it, when I talk to a lot of some of my younger friends that I meet at gigs that have bands, they just seem to be much more organized about the way they develop their art i mean we just kind of, things just happened and we got lucky incredible stuff and i remember seeing an interview with grace once and she said that what she loved about the band was that everyone was different everyone had different strengths and styles and that's yeah. kind of what really helped when it came to the right. writing the recording and the performing too yeah that and that was you know the jefferson airplane is, is a funny animal and this many years later you know of course you know if i if i was a an alumni of a band like the eagles you know the songs would be selling the reunions the airplane yeah we did have a couple of pop hits but that really wasn't wasn't really our strength and grace is absolutely right everybody in the band even jack and jack and myself and jack and i've been playing together since 1958 we've been friends forever and we're we sort of unified in our music thing but we're really different kind of guys but everybody else paul marty Grace, spencer when he was the drummer in the band totally different and so our strength was when we work together really interesting things happen and i do have to say that for the most part everybody was incredibly supportive of everybody else's idiosyncrasies not obviously not all the time obviously but but really for the most part everybody was really uh accepted accepting that a lot of acceptance for everybody's individual autonomy but the important thing was have the band making music together and when it worked, that's what was going on. Absolutely. And you mentioned a couple of pop hits there. I mean, Somebody to Love, White Rabbit. I mean, they became huge hits and sure. they're still still talked about and still played today. I mean, how did it feel at the time when they became big hits then? Well, I remember, you know, when our, for the first Airplane album was this album Takes Off. And that's what Bigney was in the band and Skip Spence, who was later in Moby Grape, was the drummer. That's a, that's a folk rock album. Yeah. Uh, a Surrealistic Pillow is, is like a rock and roll album. So, so the first time I heard one of the songs uh, from from our first album, from Takes Off, played on the radio, it was like, I mean, kids today don't get that because there's so many ways to listen to music. But for us, to have something played on the radio, and this was just like a regional thing in San Francisco, it was like, wow, unbelievable. So when when those two songs became hits off Surrealistic Pillow, it was, it was almost incomprehensible to us, really. I mean, how can this happen? You know, I mean, if we could figure that out, we'd do it all the time. But but it doesn't work like that. But yeah, once again, and I remember that uh, that around the same same time, the Doors' first album came out, and we were we were were the same agency, so we did a lot of touring at the same time. And for two young bands at the time, to have that much of an international presence was incomprehensible. Absolutely. And speaking of. Um presence that kind of went around the world we have to mention woodstock i've spoken recently to to cosmo from credence and sure. to uh, rick lee from 10 years after who also played there so i'd like to get your thoughts and your memories and your recollections on on everything that happened in that crazy magical weekend yeah yeah exactly well you know that you think about woodstock and obviously it's one of the major iconic events of, of my generation if you think about woodstock 
the way that the way it was for actually working the gig. If if we had a gig like that today, it'd be this gig sucks because it was rainy and all kinds of stuff happened. But you're right. In that time, it was magical. And you know, I'd um, in a normal world, I'd be a great grandfather. But in this one, I have a 15 year old daughter, and so so we've. Uh, We've been to Woodstock and stuff, and she looks at these pictures, and I go, sweetie, you know, I'll never play for a crowd that big again as long as I live. To be a part of something like that really was unbelievable. So I don't know what the, guy, the guys used to, how, how it was for them, but I remember we drove in, and, and because I'm still that nut. If I'm going to, if my gig's at 7 o'clock in the evening, I'm going to get there probably at 1 in the afternoon. That's just the way I do things. So we drove in early when you can still do that. And of course, you know, uh, it was rainy, it was muddy, um, you know, yes, we were backstage, but that those were days of zero amenities, you know, nobody was yeah. talking about the brown M&Ms back then, if you had a toilet, it was a big deal, you know, so by today's, today's standards, that you know, as a gig, you go, I don't know about this gig, but there was magic in the air, I mean, all that stuff that happened, possible to really describe to somebody that wasn't there and you see the movie I mean, it's huge crowds of people and stuff and the energy that comes off a crowd like that is unbelievable and so of course the airplane we went on i think it was like 17 or 18 hours late and that's just how it was and one of my most exciting memories of that was seeing santana's gig because i knew carlos and some of the guys from san francisco but i'd never heard that was a new a new band for him and i'd never heard that and i remember thinking and even today having it's, it's one of the great live performances of all time absolutely and did you get to do much mingling backstage because obviously there was huge delays and everything like that wasn't there was there all the bands just oh, milling about and yeah exactly just milling about and you know back back then it was the the uh, you know it was just sort of very casual social scene for the most part. And one of the things that I always found amusing back then and even today, it, a lot a lot of a lot of the the, the bands from from uh, from England etc. that came over were much more professional musicians than we San Franciscans were in a lot of ways. You know the way they dressed, their clothes. Like I remember there was this gal that made clothes for. Uh, Jeannie, the, uh, Jeannie the Taylor made clothes from the English bands and was a friend of Paul's and she looked at us and she went, you guys are like farmers and freaks. I mean, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, it's just, we were just so casual about all stuff and the, and the English guys were so much more professional, obviously, especially for us guys that came out of the folk world. So, so, but once again, hanging out back then in the States in the 60s, there was none. There's none of that kind of swing and dick thing that sort of happens sometimes with with egos and whatnot. And and, and yes, partied a lot together. <laughs> Just a few words about someone we've mentioned a couple of times, Grace Slick. I mean, she was a real pioneer, wasn't she, when it came to female rock stars and, and that kind of thing in the world and I know she wrote uh, the foreword to your autobiography didn't she so just what was she like as a well what is she like as a person and what was she like to, to create music with well you know uh, a couple of years ago I got to thinking about it you know you sort of take sometimes you just take your friends for granted and and I picked up the phone and I called her and, and I said you know I never told you this but but you need to know what an honor it was to play music with you and she kind of spluttered around because she's not like a soft fuzzy kind of person but she was really you know both her and janice but grace because grace rose much was a really interesting woman in the time when there were women in the music business of course but I, I i can't think of another one that was stage center as much as she was you know she was a really interesting person she's a, she was a beautiful woman but uh but at the same time 
and this is probably like it's a, it's a bad metaphor, but in a way, in the band, she was like one of the boys. I mean, you look at her; she's obviously not one. I get that, you know. But but in terms of our work ethic and stuff like that, she was definitely one of the boys. And the stuff that she brought to the table, I mean, she just listened to such interesting music all the time. I mean, if you listen to her song uh, "Eskimo Blue Day," uh, I, I think it's on Volunteers. I can't I can't remember all this stuff. But anyway. A lot of her music that she wrote, she was really into Eric Satie, so a lot of the music that she wrote in that period is very asymmetrical compared to the rock, the, the basic pop rock at the time, which made it really interesting for guys like us to play music with her. I mean, she was really the shit. There's no two ways about it, you know. She didn't suffer fools handily. She had, she had back then and still had today has no verbal boundaries whatsoever. If you're out in public with her, you got to have thick skin because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. Um, and then somebody else you, you mentioned as well, yourself and Jack Cassidy, you've been friends for, for life pretty much, haven't you? And you, you started Hot Tuna as a kind of a side project when Grace was, was kind of recovering from a, a vocal cord surgery and things like that. And then it just kind of grew arms and legs from there, didn't it? It sure did. I'm not sure that we even thought about it as a as a real as a real entity as a project at all. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Like I said, Jack and I've been playing together forever, and we always have a good time doing it. And and you know, in, in the in the, before Hot Tuna became Hot Tuna, you know, we always did something when the airplane wasn't working or if we had downtime. But we got that ball rolling and went through a lot of different incarnations and different people and this and that. And it, once again, it's a real San Francisco thing. It just kind of grew into something, and all of a sudden it was there, you know. And, and then and then we needed a name, and so even though you haven't asked me the question, I'll give you the answer anyway. So people go, is it true that the, the, the original name for Hot Tuna was going to be Hot Shit, but the record company wouldn't let you do it? The answer is no, that's not true. So there's a, there's a, um, a Piedmont-style player, blues player, He's one of the holy trinity of blues player. Blind Boy Fuller, Blind Arthur Blake, and Blind Gary Davis, all from the Piedmont. Are kind of, for guys like me, they're kind of like the guys, you know. Well, anyway, Blind Boy Fuller has a song called Keep on Truckin' Mama. And one of the lyrics in that song is, What's that smell like fish, oh baby? Tell you if I really want to know. That ain't pudding, that ain't pie. That's the stuff I got you by. So anyway, so we've been doing that song for years. I remember we were driving in a car in New York, and... And for some reason, the song came up, and maybe I was, who knows, singing a verse, and I go, what's that smell like fish, oh baby? And I remember Paul Cantor, and he goes, hot tuna. And I went, that's a great name for a man. <laughs> In our defense, it was the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> and it absolutely stuck. Um, it's just brilliant. Um, what, what was your thoughts then on, on the way that Jefferson Airplane became Starship and, and in the end and all its different incarnations? Well, you know, you know, li life goes on. And, and when Jack and I left the band, the, the the there were a lot of members of Jefferson Airplane over the years, pre-Starship. In, in my opinion, the seminal version is, is me, Jack, Paul, Marty, Grace, and Spencer Dryden. We had, we had other drummers and stuff like that, but that's, that, to me, that's the, the golden era. Anyway, so, so when I, you know, because we all owned the name of the band. When Jack and I left the band, they couldn't use that name anymore. But, you know, Paul had done that Blows Against the Empire album, and he had been thinking about the Jefferson Starship concept anyway. So it seemed logical to the, to the members of the band that continued on to take that name and, and Jack and I, fine, absolutely. And, you know, people talk about all this stuff, you know, 
we built a city on rock and roll. That's the worst, whatever, you know. You got to listen, it might not be your favorite song, but the Jefferson Starship was hugely popular in the 80s. You know, Jack and I always joke, we always quit the band before it makes the big money. You know, the uh, Starship was huge back then. And so my, the answer is, you know, more power to the to you guys, you know. Good stuff. And um, just something else I want to touch on as well. 1996, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean... How did that feel to be inducted? I mean, what was that experience all like for you? You know, that, uh, listen, that's funny stuff too. Obviously, it's a great experience. I mean, you know, and I remember one time Jack, Jack and I were doing an interview and he goes, you know, when we were kids, we always wanted to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I said, Jack, when we were kids, there was no Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I know exactly what you mean, you know. So, yeah, so for, for me, it was a great honor. I mean, look, you know, for to, to be recognized by your peers whatever you know like I, I've never won a Grammy but I've had a couple nominations I mean too and then we got a lifetime people go what does it matter the answer doesn't really matter at all but it makes you feel good you know as somebody that's professional in business to be recognized by people in general is a good thing does it mean, mean anything at the end of the day it's, it's good for introductions because you can introduce introduce me as you know member of the etc but uh, but in any case, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is also in Ohio, where I live, and I've, I've, I've become sort of like the resident member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I do lots of stuff with them. They do great stuff. It's a great museum. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, Cleveland is not around the corner from where, where you live, but if you ever come over, you ought to check it out. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, it felt great to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Pete Seeger was in the same class that we were, and he was a hero to me when I was a kid. So that was really cool. Very cool indeed. Now, just uh, bringing things to kind of today then, I mean, December you released uh, your latest album, didn't you? The River Flows, along with John Hurlbut. I mean, drawing great reviews already. Is that something that you you enjoy doing still, putting things down on record? Well, absolutely. You know, the thing that the, the River Flows thing, you know, was really so life-sustaining for me in a lot of ways. You know, it happened in the early pandemic here. I mean, listen, and so I've got this Fur Peace Ranch thing here. It's a little music school. And we also do live shows and and, I, and this and that. And Johnny and I, we've been friends for over 40 years. And we always played together a little bit. But I've got a little restaurant here, too. So we started playing for the lunch crowd. And I remember telling the people when, they, when, we, when we were doing lunches. And I go, listen, we're background music. You don't have to applaud. But you can't tell us to shut up. We're going to play. That's the deal. So we spent some time playing, and I and I really liked the songs that he chose, uh, and it was just it, it made me it put me in the same mindset that I was in back in the Jefferson airplane when my job wasn't to write songs to be a front guy, but just to find a way to to play along with whatever the song was and make make it as good a song as we could. So it just hit me, you know. I said and I talked to my wife. I want to do an album. I told John, listen, we're going to do an album. Great. Uh, we we set up this this little building we're in here is our library for a piece ranch and there's I've got a little workshop next door, and we set all the recording equipment there. We did it all live, no no digital fixing and editing and stuff like that, and it was so rewarding to me personally. I know it was to John also, but for me, I got to I got to do Yorma stuff without having to be Yorma all the time. If that makes any sense to you, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was just really a great time and. Uh, you know, it's a great way to it's a great way to have a conversation with friends. We just actually, you know, things were opening up here in Ohio again. Johnny and I just had a, a gig two days ago up in Lancaster. It's a town that's north of me, 
and there were there were actually live people in the audience. That was pretty exciting, and and we just had a great time. So the river flow was really important to me. And and in July, volume two is coming out also. The other thing was is for all, for aging musicians like me to think about getting a deal with a record company is unthinkable. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You know, people put stuff out themselves. So when Johnny and I were going to do this project, I figure it. I do. I mean. But but we buy we buy product for our little company store here, and so Johnny, who is, is our manager at the ranch, knew this guy Ed Frank from the Culture Factory, which is a French label that does beautiful reissues of classic rock stuff. He said, "How would you like to do a, a non-classical stuff with classical guys?" And they said, "Great." So they did our album for us. I mean, you know. Hot Tuna couldn't have done that. Well, we could now because we're hooked up with Culture Factory, but generally speaking, it just wouldn't happen. So to be able to do this project um, the way I wanted to do it here at my place and to have a bunch of great guys like the guys at Culture Factory put out a quality package because we have the vinyl and the CD and all that nonsense, you know, which was beyond exciting for a guy my age. It was really, and I'm telling Johnny, who's played music all his life, but he's never been really in the music business. I go, you have no idea how special this was that we were able to do this thing. Fantastic stuff, fantastic stuff. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, the Fur Piece Ranch then, because um, there's an awful lot going on there, isn't there? Yeah, well, we, you know, we've been pretty much shut down uh, because of the pandemic, obviously, because that's how it was. But I've been doing lots of online stuff. Thank goodness for Zoom, doing a lot of online teaching. But we are, as things are opening up, we're going to finish up this year. We have live classes. We also have, uh, we built an outdoor stage during the pandemic, and I have my indoor theater also. We're doing those quarantine concert things every week. So we're doing lots of live shows. Um, and uh, as we open up again, the students will be back. I've got 126 acres of land here. It's it's sort of it's wooded. Most of it is wooded, but it's in a Southeast Ohio is a beautiful part of the country. It's very rural. Um, it, it's very quiet. The, the, it's just a neat place to be. And when you come on our property, it's difficult to actually talk about this without sounding sappy. But there's just something magical about the musical community when people come here. Because I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm in a county with less than twenty thousand people in it. So people come here just to enjoy what we have to offer, which is a musical community. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Yoma, and I wish you the best of luck for everything going forward. Well, listen, man, it's been great talking to you. I hope we get to meet in person sometime and uh, stay well. Another incredibly warm and friendly star with some great stories to tell. Still pulling out the stops as well with recent albums and well-received lockdown live stream gigs too. Now, if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod, then please do go and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series. As mentioned earlier, they're all big, big names with some great rock and roll stories to tell as well. It's a good mix from mods to punks, prog rockers to hair metalers, hard rockers to radio rockers. Please go back and check them all out. Now, we're at that point of the show where I give you my song recommendations now. It's my favourite five songs from the band of the guest on the show. So I'm excited to bring you my favourite five songs from the band Jefferson Airplane, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At Five is one of the most iconic songs from the San Francisco acid rock scene, used millions of times in movies and based on the Alice in Wonderland books. Its hypnotic groove lives long in the memory. And number five for me is White Rabbit. 
Number four may be a little controversial. It comes from their reunion album back in 1989 when the majority of the classic lineup reformed from an album and a tour. It's the opening track on that album, and number four is Planes. My number three is actually a cover, but it's a brilliant version they did. They recorded it on one of their first recording sessions, but it didn't make an album until it was re-recorded many years later. Number three is High Flying Bird. And number two is a rousing, upbeat number. Yes, let's start a revolution. It's a brilliant song and it comes from their 1969 album of the same name. And number two is Volunteers. And at number one was the band's first commercial hit coming from the Surrealistic Pillow album and helped shoot the band and the San Francisco scene to fame. It was written by Grace Slick's original band, The Great Society, but Jefferson Airplane's version was more raw and visceral and brilliant. The number one Jefferson Airplane song according to Vintage Rock Pod is the classic, Somebody to Love. So there you go, my favourite five songs from Jefferson Airplane. Somebody to Love is an absolute classic, really is. Younger listeners may recognise it from the dance version that came out about 20 years ago from the group Boogie Pimps, but nothing beats the airplane version. Give the Woodstock performance a watch on YouTube when you get the chance to soak in the morning maniac music, as Grace Slick describes it. It's a brilliant version they do for you on there as well. Anyway, as ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. Message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Give us a like or a follow on there and interact as well. Love to hear from you. And that will be fantastic. Also, sign up to become a Vintage Rock Pod VRP VIP. Go to the website vintagerockpod.com and fill in the form on the front page there and you'll get a lovely weekly newsletter and uh, yeah, absolutely free. You'll never get more than one a week and you'll never have your details sold on to anybody else. It is literally just for the purposes of finding out about stuff going on in the world of Vintage Rock Pod. Well, that's it for this week's main show then. Until the next episode, remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.